I thought I'd take a, a couple minutes and not very much time to update you on what is happening in Canada, God's work in Canada. A number of people have asked about Hong Kong and China, oftentimes asking about China as such. We need to realize that Hong Kong doesn't consider itself China, although it is ruled by China at this time. But the telecast is now in its second season, about halfway through its second season, not quite. But in our first season in Hong Kong, we averaged 74 responses uh, per program, and that included the reruns that we had. This year, we're averaging 107, so we've gone from 74 to 107. Interestingly, our highest program, 168, was played. That was the third time it had been played. It was the first of two-part series on the seven laws of success, and that particular two-part series has given us the highest responses of any of our programs there. They definitely want to know about success. Uh, some other topics don't do nearly as well, and sometimes we can't figure out why a program does well and why it doesn't. It may be something locally that's happening over there. But nevertheless, from 74 up to 107 is very gratifying. And we also have a trickle of individuals who are asking about the church, not just from the telecast, but also from the Internet. Uh, we've had a request for more information about the church from Mongolia, from uh, Shanghai recently, also from Hong Kong recently, and another place in China, I, I can't remember, Jingsu province, I believe it is. And this man decided to write his life story to me, and it starts out and ends in an insane asylum. So I'm not sure exactly uh, who we're dealing with there, but he wanted to communicate with somebody, and I think I'll have to uh, keep that communication rather short uh, for a number of reasons. In the French language... It's been very exciting, Mr. Hernandez, and others have gotten us uh, into the printing of the magazine, the Tomorrow's World. I won't try to pronounce it in French, but nevertheless, the French language magazine. And after our first year, or the end of our first year, we've gone from a little over 600 uh, prints to 820. The latest one is up to 820, so we've had a steady increase in the number of magazines going out. We believe that much of this is word of mouth, uh, but uh, we don't know all the reasons for it, but we believe it is word of mouth that people are seeing the magazine, telling others about it. But that's tremendous growth, so over 30% uh, growth, about 30, 33%, 35% growth in the first year of the printing of the magazine there. The Tomorrow's World Special Presentations have gone well. This year we have reached a total of 960 approximately, I say approximately because we have one going on this weekend, uh, guests. We've been trying to hit the 1,000 mark, but so far, the last two years, we've come up a little bit short. I'm fairly certain that we won't have enough to hit the 1,000 mark in, the, in Castlegar, B.C., but the Tomorrow's World Special Presentations have been very beneficial. This year alone, we've started churches in Bonneville, Alberta, Lethbridge, Alberta, and Peterborough, Ontario. We're in the process of starting a couple of those right now as a direct result of the Tomorrow's World Special Presentations. Last year, 2011, we started congregations in Moncton, New Brunswick, 
St. Catharines, Ontario, Sudbury, North, uh, Sudbury and North Bay, Ontario. And again, those were a direct result of the Tomorrow's World special presentations. So while you might not be familiar with those cities, they're uh, somewhat smaller than you might be used to hearing down here. Nevertheless, uh, they are producing fruit, and we're able to start congregations in some of those areas anywhere from 6 to 20 people. And uh, that means a lot to those in those areas. It fills in gaps in the, the map where people don't have nearly so far to drive in order to be a part of a congregation. So things are going well there. Again, as I said, I, I was uh, very pleased to hear the special music, which truly was very special there, and to see young adults that I've known in some cases for a number of years, going back when they were teenagers or even long before uh, teenage years, and seeing them contributing to the church here, being a part of the Living University, uh, in some cases thinking about getting married and uh, starting a family of their own. It's uh, very good to see that. And for some years I've been praying that God would bring more families into the church because some of our areas have very few families. Mississauga, Ontario, for example, where we have an average attendance somewhere around 85, has 41 individuals that come by themselves to services. They're either young singles or uh, they are older people who may have a mate, but the mate is not involved in the church, or they are single, divorced, whatever it might be. So nearly half of that congregation is made up of one person, uh, you know, one person adding up to uh, almost half of that congregation. We are seeing some growth in families. We're beginning to see more families come along. One of our congregations in Canada is about 40% young people. And that's very nice to see, and most of that has happened in recent times, uh, within the last year or so. And that's very good to see that we have young families coming along, and I'm sure that many of you are praying for families to come along, because we want a church that will continue to grow. And as we are all getting older, every one of us, whether we're the youngest or the oldest, we know that unless we have younger people coming along, eventually you come to an end of an organization, unless you bring... Uh, other people in, and of course we are doing that as well. We're also seeing something that's very heartening, and that is homegrown families developing in the church. When we attended the feast in Panama City this past year, uh, someone had the idea of getting all the people who had gone to camp together for a group picture. And I was quite amazed at how many of our former campers are now uh, or, or former workers, um, they might have been staff, counselors, are now married and have families of their own, two, three, and even four, I think maybe one case, five children already, at least four, I know that. And so we got up on the stage and took up the entire stage with campers and former staff and all the families, and to see all those young families, it was really wonderful. In fact, several of the ones who I guess planned this who decided that we ought to have a, a picture, uh, were counselors from 2002, the male counselors from 2002. And they took a picture afterward of, of themselves there because of the eight male counselors 10 years ago in 2002, six of them were in Panama City, and the other two are still in the church, but they're someplace else uh, for the feast. And seven of the eight are now married, and a number of them have 
families of their own. I'm certain that every young parent wants to see his child or his children stay in the church. I think that's the goal of every parent. If we're here because we want to be here because we believe that this is right, we know that this is where the truth is. We want our children to be here with us. The sad reality is that that's not always reality. The reality is that sometimes our young people don't follow our paths. And so the question must be asked, why? Why is it that some kids stay in the church and some go astray? Why do they run away from the truth into the world and mess up their lives in many cases? Today I'm going to give you several reasons why church kids go wrong. There are two Proverbs I'd like to begin with. One is in Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. And let me say while we're turning over there that this is an incomplete sermon because there's much more that can be said about it. And I'd like to also make the point right at the beginning while we can do everything that we try to do or we know we should do as parents, children are free moral agents, and they have to make their own decisions in life. And sometimes, through no fault of our own, they make bad decisions. But more often than not, when you really analyze it, there are things that parents can do differently that would make a difference. It's easy to know the principles of child-rearing. It's so hard to put them into practice because it takes energy. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of commitment, and a lot of sacrifice. And one of the things that gets in our way is emotion. Our emotions are wonderful and good, but they have to be guided by wisdom or we can make some very bad decisions. And those decisions aren't made all at once as one single decision, but oftentimes they are accumulation of decisions made over a long period of time that add up to a problem. But here in Proverbs 22 and verse 6, it gives a principle. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I've heard many rationalizations around this proverb some people have tried to say that it means that train up a child in the way he shall go, and he'll go astray, but he'll come back in the end. And that's not what the proverb says. On the other hand, we have to realize that this is a general principle. Is it an exact a statement that if you do all that you can do, that it is guaranteed that your child will not go astray? Well, we could discuss that. We could debate it. I'll leave that for you to decide, but I think that either extreme is wrong if we take what is stated here and try to state it some other way, or if we try to read into it more than what the Proverbs are intended to give us, which is general life principles, I think perhaps we're making a mistake and we could make a mistake on either side of the ditch. Now, I'm not here to condemn anyone. And I realize that this subject is a very sensitive subject. It's a subject that uh, sometimes angels fear to tread, you might say, because when you talk about people's children, 
there is no more emotional subject that you can address. And people become very defensive, and they may take it as though someone's attacking them, and that's not the intent at all. But if we do not speak about the subject, how can we possibly grow and learn and avoid some very obvious mistakes that can be made by young parents? And I'm primarily speaking to younger parents, but nevertheless, some of these, all these principles apply as we get into the teen years and so forth. So let's look at five reasons why kids go astray. Actually, I wasn't going to give the number five because I thought I might need to stop before I get to the end. But I will give you as many reasons as I can give here. Uh, not that these are all the reasons because there are many others that, that we could give, but I, I've narrowed it down to five today. The number one reason is that that children go astray is disrespect for parents. And there are four ways that I'd like to pass on here that this can happen. And the very first one is hypocrisy, not practicing what you preach. How many times have we heard the old saw that says, don't do as I do, do as I say? And that's a prescription for disaster when it comes to child-rearing. Young people are going to follow your example far more than they will follow your words. The way that you speak, the language that you use, how you conduct yourself in sporting events, whether it's basketball or golf, whatever it might be, your driving habits, your television viewing habits, and your spiritual life in general. They know whether mom and dad are studying God's Word whether they are praying to their Creator, whether they are practicing what has been spoken of in services each week. They recognize those things. I just heard the other day uh, that a study had shown that parents who drive aggressively have children who grow up driving aggressively. Wow, isn't that revolutionary? Who would have ever thought such a thing? Well, I think we all know that that's the way things are. But that's what I mean by decisions every day. The decisions that we make when we get in the car, the decisions of the language we use, the way that we have uh, conduct ourselves on the basketball court or on the golf course, how we conduct ourselves is making a statement every time an issue comes up. We're making a choice, whether to lose our cool, to keep our cool, or whatever, and that's going to affect the behavior of our children who are mimicking us. My wife noticed one time I was giving a Tomorrow's World special presentation, and one of our ministers was there, and he has a young son, and we we actually filled the room. We had more than we we expected. Uh, We had about 38, I think it was, that registered, and we had something like 70-some, 70, uh, whatever it was, uh, people that, that came. And then we had a few members, and so we had well over 80 people there. And so all the seats were taken, but they had a stage there. And so one of our ministers sat there, and my wife was watching him as uh, his, his little boy was sitting next to him. And when his father would do something, you know, put his hand like this, the son would do the same. When he crossed his legs, his son would do the same. That little boy was watching his father, and every move that his father made, he would make. 
We were at a restaurant uh, a couple nights ago. It's a new restaurant here, and it has one of these hibachi grills where they make the, the food right in front of you. And there was a family of four that they sat at the, the grill, and then they sat the three of us there. And so we were sitting on one end, they were sitting on the other end, and we, we engaged them in conversation. And it was a very, uh, it was a wonderful evening because there were two little children. I don't know exactly what their ages were, maybe eight and, and six. I, my wife is, they were older. They were older than that. Okay, I, I'm not sure exactly what they were. Uh, what, so how old were they? Ten, ten and nine or eight or something like that. So anyway, they, they were a little bit older. And it was interesting because the father, who was Japanese, and the wife was not, but the, the father was, was talking and he was gesturing, and the boy, who was a little bit mischievous in a way, but you could tell this is a, a wonderful close family. You could just see it in the way that they reacted with their parents. But his father was gesturing, and the boy was, he was doing all the same gestures as his father, kind of mimicking him in a very playful way, not in a disrespectful way. But uh, you, you, you see that in children. They want to be like mom. They want to be like dad. Or in this particular case, it was more of having fun with dad. But uh, it, was, it was very cute to watch. The way we conduct ourselves sends a message to our children. You can fool those outside of your home, but those inside the home know exactly what goes on. And let's face facts. None of us is perfect. Not a one of us is. But we have to take into account how we conduct ourselves in the light of our family. Our children know whether we pray, whether we study, and what we profess, whether there's a connection there or whether there is hypocrisy. In John, the 13th chapter, John 13 and verse 14, he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, we're familiar with this passage, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. You see, Jesus taught by example, and he wanted his disciples to follow that example. In 1 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy in being a good minister that example is very important. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, he says, Let no one despise your youth. But be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. You could take that verse and you could meditate on what that means. I'll leave that up to you because the point that I want to make here is that Timothy was told by the Apostle Paul to set a right example. That yes, he was a younger man. And how do you gain the respect of those who are older? You gain it by example, by the way you conduct your life. And it's the same as parents. We gain the respect of our children by being consistent in what we believe and how we conduct our lives, that there's a consistency, there's a connection between what we profess and what we do. But if we are hypocritical in our lives, Our children 
are not going to follow us. Let me make a, a statement here to qualify that a little bit because every one of us, I think I can say that. Well, let me not say that. Most of us, at one time or another, does something that is contrary to what we profess. We do a hypocritical action. There's a difference between committing a hypocritical act and being a hypocrite. If you turn over to, and I'm not going to take the time, but when you turn over to 1 John, the third chapter, it says there that that uh, if we are begotten, as it should be, not born, but begotten of God, we don't sin. The apostle Peter already showed in the first chapters, verse 8 and 10, that we do sin. And if we say we don't have sin, we're a liar. But what it's talking about there is our way of life. He who practices righteousness is righteous. And who practices sin is going to be, therefore, a sinner or unrighteous. And he's talking not about the impossibility of sinning, but the fact that it is totally incongruous with the Christian way of life. So while we're all going to make mistakes, while we're all going to do something at some time or another, and not just one time, but a number of times in our life, that are not consistent with what we profess, our children can tell the difference between one who is living a life of hypocrisy, living a life of unrighteousness, and one who occasionally makes a mistake. And there's nothing wrong with saying to our children, I was wrong, I should not have done that. And when we find ourselves doing something that is inconsistent with what we profess, it's good to do that, because that is an example to our children, to know that it's okay to say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Because if mom and dad can do that, then certainly they can do it as well. Obviously, if we're having to do that all the time, four or five times a day, or you go out hunting on a, a hunting trip or a fishing trip and you, you use language the wrong way consistently over and over again, obviously then there's a problem because it becomes a habit and they see that and it becomes a little bit hollow if we, if we say, well, I'm wrong, but we're, we continue to do it. So there's a difference between a hypocrite and one who simply makes a mistake from time to time. And children are wonderful in that they're very forgiving and very forgetful, and they will understand the difference. We were talking to an individual here recently, someone that I knew when he was just a little fella, many, many years ago. And I knew the family, and his mother was not a church member for 30 years. His father was. And the mother was hostile. It made life rough on them, but the father stayed faithful to her. He continued to encourage the children to not worry, things will work out when she would threaten to leave if they went to church and this type of thing. And 30 years went by. And then the disruption took place in the worldwide church. And this man's father and he and, and himself and others in the family came over to the global Church of God, later Living Church of God as we know it today, 
And this action told the mother, my husband is really serious. She realized that this this man that she was married to was genuine. He wasn't just following a church someplace. He was following the truth. And it took 30 years. But she came into God's church. She's deceased now, as, as the man is as well. But she came into the truth because of the example of her husband. And she recognized after 30 years, not that he was ever inconsistent before, but she realized that this is more than a social club for her husband, that this was really important. What we do, the decisions we make, are seen by others. In this case, it took a long time. It usually doesn't take that long with our children. But they have to know that we believe what we profess, that we live what we profess. So the first way to bring about disrespect in our children is to be a hypocrite to profess one thing and to live life differently. A second way that we can bring about disrespect is lack of wisdom. A parent must have and exercise reasonable common sense and wisdom. In Proverbs, the 26th chapter, Proverbs 26 and verse 1, it says, As snow in summer... And rain and harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Honor is not fitting for a fool. Kids know when you don't know what you're talking about. Back in the 60s, a lot of parents made the mistake of saying things about drugs that their kids simply knew were not true, especially marijuana. In general, what the parents were saying was correct, but sometimes technically it was not. And the kids lost respect for their parents. They thought, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. And if they don't know what they're talking about, they they didn't follow what they were trying to teach them. Additionally, if you make a fool of yourself in public, your children will lose respect for you. I know that teenagers often get embarrassed by their parents. Everybody else's teenager thinks your parents are great, but... We're all sensitive about those things, or at least most of us are. Now, there are young people who think their parents are the most cool people in the world, uh, the most wonderful people in the world. But a lot of times, kids get a little embarrassed by parents, and I think that that's probably something that we're not going to be able to change all the time. But at the same time, we need to be very careful and not become foolish in public, because when we do that we can lose, uh, cause our children to lose respect for us. A third way that they can lose respect for us if they feel that we are unfair. And so anytime you hear your son or daughter, even the little ones say, that's not fair, it's a subject that needs to be dealt with. It's important for kids to know that you are fair in your dealings with them. I remember a couple that we knew very well, my wife and I. They were friends of ours. Also, uh, people that were higher rank in the ministry than we are, and uh, or were at the time. And so, in a sense, we looked up to them. Uh, 
But they were close friends, and we had a close relationship with them, enough so that when they were in our area, they stayed with us, and we stayed with them when we, when we were in their area, and we'd go out of our way to visit with them. And we learned a lot in the way that they trained their first uh, child. It was interesting that we really felt that they were wonderful parents because of certain things. For example, when it came to discipline, we learned that mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, need to communicate with one another so that one is not disciplining for one purpose and another one disciplining for another purpose. But they would discuss things. For example, they didn't want their daughter running out in the street. And so they decided that if she does, we've got to deal with that issue very uh, very quickly. However, if she knocks her juice over on the table at breakfast, right now that's not that big of a deal. There's nothing hurt. If she starts sticking bobby pins in light sockets or pulling lamps off, that's important. And so they, just, they would talk that over and say, look, these are the things that we want to discipline her for. We don't want to just be spanking for this, spanking for that, or correcting for all different things. There are enough times you have to say don't or give them warnings. But when it came to actual discipline, they didn't want to be disciplining for everything at the time. They wanted to deal with the things that were truly important, starting out with those things which are life-threatening. So we learned something from them in that way. They set a wonderful example. But after a number of years, they had, uh, they, well, they had another child several years later, and a number of years later, we were visiting with them. And both my wife and I were, were shocked in what we saw because the oldest one, which was now getting into a little bit of a, a gawky stage, out of that cute stage into a gawky stage, could do absolutely nothing right in the eyes of her father. And the little one that we both thought was the biggest brat in the world could do nothing wrong. And the older one would say, that's unfair, that's unfair. That was her mantra. She didn't understand. She was in tears always. And the parents chalked it up to just about everything except that which was obvious. And what was obvious was that the little one could get away with murder, almost. She wasn't big enough to commit that but she was able to get away with almost anything. And the older one, no matter what she did, it was wrong. And it truly was unfair. It was so unfair that my wife and I decided that we'd put our friendship on the line and we'd talk to them about it. And we did. And the husband literally walked out on us. And he came back about four hours later after he'd calmed down. And he did thank us for it. And we remained friends after that. But what we saw there was that they were destroying the life of this child. And sadly, I don't think it turned out very well. We haven't been in contact with them for many years, but I don't think it worked out very well for either one of the children. They started out so well with the one, and I don't know what happened. Something psychologically uh, affected the father especially toward his older daughter, and in so many ways they, they just simply... I won't say destroyed her, but they, they damaged her in a way that was so tragic by treating her unfairly. When you hear a child say, that's not fair, you need to stop and think, 
is what I'm doing fair or is it not? The answer may be that it is fair. And if it is, then you need to explain why it's fair. I understand that with a small child, that trying to reason with them, it may not stick with them exactly, but at least you have to address the question with them. And oftentimes the things that we tell our children uh, don't apply right now. It applies later on. I remember growing up where my parents would always tell me, especially my father, don't put your hands on the wall when you're going up the stairs. You have this brown streak on the white wall from kids' fingers. I think some of the rest of you had the same thing. It didn't seem to affect us that much, except when they caught us directly. But what do you think I would be telling my kids today? Get your hands off the walls. (laughs) I'd be telling them the same thing. Because over a period of time, you do learn, don't you? Mr. Greer said something one time at the summer camp. Uh, He he, he told me, and I've always remembered that. He said, what we are teaching at the summer camp today is really not for today. It's for four or five years down the road. Because oftentimes they hear things, but it doesn't really process for a period of time. We have to teach what is right, and in time it will finally sink in. But that's the hard part because they, they simply wear us down, don't they? Especially the little ones. They just We have to keep the mantra over and over and over again. But you have to keep saying it. It's got to be fair, though, or you've got to explain why it's not. You can explain why one child can't drive at age 16 and the other one can. In fact, I don't think I would say to to my, my kids, well, when you're 16, you can drive. It'd be more like, if you can prove yourself responsible when you're 16 or 17, then maybe we'll let you drive. But to your son, you might say, well, look, your daughter has proven that she's responsible. When you prove that you're responsible, then you can drive. In other words, being fair does not necessarily equate to equal. One of the greatest basketball coaches of all time, John Wooden, who had something like 11 national championships in 13 years, arguably the greatest university coach of all time, said this, and they call me coach. I don't treat my players equally. Equally, I treat them fairly. I treat them fairly. Sometimes one child needs something different than the other. One may be more responsible than the other. You don't have to treat them equally, but however you treat them, it's got to be fair. And I realize you're not going to win an argument with them when they say that's not fair and you start to explain it and they're not going to necessarily agree to it. But I think we can remember back, can't we, when we knew we were wrong and we knew mom or dad was right. We would never admit it, but we understood it deep down inside or maybe after a while, after we calmed down, it finally sunk in. So we have to deal with that accusation because if Young people think that they're being treated unfairly. That causes them to lose respect. And there's a fourth way that they can lose respect, and that's when parents don't demand respect. When parents try to be a buddy with their children instead of the parent to the child. 
I, w I won't speak much on that other than just to make that statement, and we'll get to that a little bit later, at least a part of that later, the parent, parent's responsibility in other ways. So let's move to point number two of why kids go astray, and that is a lack of exposure. A lack of exposure. In Proverbs, the 27th chapter, in verse 23, we are admonished, be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. So someone who is a shepherd, someone who is a rancher, needs to know the state of his flocks and of his herds. He needs to know if they're getting good pasturage, good water. He needs to know their conditions of health and so forth. A minister can apply this, that he needs to know the membership that he is serving. He needs to get out and visit. He needs to spend time with the members so that he knows what's on their mind and what's bothering them, what's hurting them and so forth. The same way, a parent needs to know his children or her children. We really need to know our children. And if we're not spending enough time with them, yes, we'll know them, but we may not know them as well as we need to. There may be things going on with our children that we don't understand. If we neglect our children, things can happen. There was a, a teenager in Canada here recently. It was big news for several weeks here. A teenage girl got online, as many of our young people do, and this, this is something that we really need to watch very carefully. But with young people, there is a, a tendency today to do some foolish things online. And a lot of girls are flashing themselves online. And what this girl didn't know was that the person that was encouraging her to do a little flashing was not somebody her age. It was somebody who was 34 years of age. And they actually have a network of these people out there. And what they do is they get a young girl to do something that is a little bit foolish, and then they encourage them to do more. And if they don't, then they threaten to blackmail them. Not threaten to blackmail. They, they blackmail them by saying, if you don't show us more, We'll put this all over the Internet. And that's what happened to this young lady, and it was tragic because she ended up committing suicide. There are things that we need to know about with our children, what they're doing. We need to be diligent to know the state of our flocks and attend to our herds because there is greater danger out there today than there's ever been, not just with the Internet but so many other things. Spending time with your kids is a top priority. Parents can get so occupied with work, socials, church activities, personal ambitions, that they don't take the time for their children. And the results are tragic in too many cases. A trouble sign, when your child begins wanting to spend time with others more than you, that's time to take notice. I understand that teenagers are going to want to spend time with teenagers. That's true. Have you ever noticed that some teenagers always want their friends to come over to their house 
and be at their house, where some teenagers want to always go to somebody else's house? Why is that? Why do some teenagers feel comfortable in their own home and want other teenagers to be there, whereas others, the last place they want to bring their friends is to their home. They want to go someplace else. The song Cats in the Cradle, we've all heard that, talking about this father and this young boy. and The young boy, a little child when he's real small, wants dad to play ball with him, wants him to do this, wants him to do that, and the dad's too busy. And then eventually, as he gets older and the father can do things with him because he's old enough to where they can do certain fun things and the father may have gotten past the stage in life where he has to just struggle just to make a living and all, suddenly he wants his son to do things, but his son is interested in somebody else. He wants to go out there, wants the keys of the car, he wants to go off and see his friends. And, of course, the the ending line is he, he grew up just like... I want to be just like you, Dad. I want to just be like you. Or, or in other words, he, he grew up just like me. And there's a certain cycle there. Now, when your young children decide that they would rather be with somebody else besides you, and I, I'm, I'm couching that by saying that there is a certain point in age where there is a certain drawing away, and we understand that, but we need to be very careful about that, that it doesn't happen too soon and even then that it isn't too radical. But that's a trouble sign, and the antidote for that is something that seems counterintuitive, and that is to increase your exposure. Spend more time with that son or that daughter. Because if he's more interested in going off over here, being around mom and dad, that may be a danger sign. In fact, it it is a danger sign. Uh, Again, that has to be understood in balance. And young people need to be able to be with other young people, but we need to know what they're doing and where they're, they're going and how much better to have their friends come over and, or, or your, your children be with other people that you know the values of so that they have certain supervision as opposed to just doing their own thing out there. I've noticed that fathers who hunt and fish with their sons, especially, no matter what other faults they might have, their sons seem to follow. They, they seem to stay around in the church, especially if the father is genuine. And we have to take all these points together. But if a father is genuine, and he may have a lot of weaknesses, but he brings his sons and daughters, but especially his sons, they go out hunting, they go fishing, they tend to follow and stay in the church. Why is that? I can think of few activities where we have more one-on-one time than hunting and fishing. If you're out in a boat with your son or your daughter, uh, you've got a captive audience there. They, They can't run over and play with somebody else, but they're doing something, and you're doing something that both of you hopefully enjoy. If they don't enjoy it, that's another matter. But if they enjoy it, they're doing it with someone that they can communicate with. And there's wonderful one-on-one time to communicate your values and what's important and to spend time with your children that way. Point number three, which is a lack of teaching. This is another reason that young people go astray, a lack of teaching. In Deuteronomy 6, 
and verse 6. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 6. It says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your, your eyes. He's talking here especially about the Ten Commandments, which are given in the previous chapter, but all of God's laws in general. And we are to teach them diligently to our children. But that has to be done with wisdom. I, I've noticed over the years that parents don't seem to think they have time to teach their children. When we had the old YES lessons, I know in one church area where I was that people would complain that, oh, we don't have time to do that. And my response always was, you have 24 hours on the Sabbath. What else are you doing on the Sabbath? You sleep for eight hours? Let's give it nine hours. Let's have three meals. That's 12 hours. You go to services and stay after. You start adding up the number of hours. You don't have time to teach your children on the Sabbath. What else are we doing on the Sabbath? What else is more important on the Sabbath than teaching our children? There is that formal teaching where we teach them to memorize the Ten Commandments as an example. How can we get away from this passage, which is right after the Ten Commandments, and not teach our children the Ten Commandments? I gave a, an exam to the, the parents in one church area. Maybe I shouldn't do that sort of thing, but I did. I'm sorry, I didn't give it to the parents. I gave it to the kids. I had them list the Ten Commandments. And this was a large congregation. And I don't remember if anybody had all ten. And most of them didn't have more than four. And I'm thinking, where are the parents? Where are the parents who have not taught their children the Ten Commandments? I remember giving a Bible study one time to a group of teens. And after the Bible study, we had a game of Bible charades. And one of the the uh, topics that they had was the Valley of Dry Bones. And none of them, 24 kids there, none of them knew what the Valley of Dry Bones was. And I thought, how can this be? They may not be listening during services, but do we not teach them the feasts and order and what they mean? One girl was heard by, by her parents or by her sister by the parents talking to her sister on the phone who was living in another location. She said, I know the Valley of Dolls can't be in the Bible. That's what she remembered from it. The Valley of Dry Bones. Brethren, we have to take time to teach our children. You see, this is the problem. Most of us know that. But we're physical, aren't we? We get tired. Uh, we just like to relax. Children sometimes have a difficult time memorizing some things. And it takes work, doesn't it? Theory is one thing. Practice is entirely different. And so I, I'm not preaching to you in that sense because I'm the same. 
I would have the same problems. If I had little kids today, I, I don't know how you'd do it. Because as you get older, you, you start looking back and think, oh, this, this, is, this is work. These little kids wear you out. They've got all that energy. So I, I'm not preaching to you. I'm just saying these are things that we need to know. Remember that in the book of First uh, John, I believe it is, it, it talks about, he says, you, you don't need anyone to teach you. And some have taken that passage to mean that, well, we don't need any ministers. Of course, what they fail to realize is that John is teaching them. What he was saying there is, look, you know these things. I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know today. I don't think so. These are basic principles. But sometimes we just need to be reminded, don't we? We need to be encouraged to do these things that we already know. But a lack of teaching is a problem. There's the formal teaching. Yes, they should know the Ten Commandments. They should know what they mean. They should know the holy days, the order of them, and what they mean. But more importantly, the kind of teaching that Moses mentions here, when you uh, sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, that's the kind of teaching that goes on as you're driving someplace, as you are throwing the hook out into the water, as you are uh, sitting at a meal. Let me give an example. Many of you are familiar with Floyd Kilcheski. He was the site manager of the summer camp in Orr, Minnesota. And I never will forget a story that he told me. He said he was about five years old. And they were sitting at a table there, his father and himself, and and as they were sitting there, his father reached into his pocket and he took out a nickel. That's five cents for people in other parts of the world, if you hear this. Uh, and he put that nickel there and he stood it up on end. And he said to his five-year-old son, Floyd, he said, Floyd, whose nickel is this? And he said, well, it's yours, Daddy. And he said, that's right. Now, if you take that nickel and you put it in your pocket, then what does that make you? And he said, well, I'd be stealing. He said, that's right, son, you'd be a thief. And then he went on to teach the lesson. He said, it doesn't matter whether it's $100 or it's five cents. You're a thief. It's not the amount, it's what you do. And at age five, he never forgot that lesson. And I remember going fishing with with Mr. Kilcheski. And we never kept fish over the number that we were supposed to catch. Honest individual. He knew that to violate that law was a form of stealing. Now, there are those who might disagree with that, but that's a consistent message. He lived what he preached. And you could see it in the choices he made when you were around him. Not that he was perfect, but he was a wonderful man that I had certainly a great admiration for. I'd like to refer to the latest edition of the Tomorrow's World magazine, Unnatural Disasters, as many of you have gotten this. This first, I've seen him here in the last day or so. But there's an article by Mr. Jonathan McNair, and it's on 
page 25 under Tomorrow's Youth. And he says this, As we transition from childhood into adulthood, we begin to develop more independence. We begin to think for ourselves and make up our own minds. We decide what to wear in the morning, what to do with our free time, and which friends to spend time with. Those decisions reflect our ability to apply facts, experience, and even emotions from the past to current situations. This is what thinking for ourselves is all about. As we exercise good judgment, our parents gain confidence in us, and they feel able to give us more independence and responsibility. Now, note this for parents. It says, ultimately, the role of parents is not just to enforce obedience to their rules. It is to develop in their children the mind and the character to apply the spirit of those rules to new and different situations. Very good article. You should certainly refer to that. I hope all of you will read it, not just our young people, but parents as well. So lack of exposure is something that's very important. We need to, I'm sorry, lack of teaching. We need to take the time to teach. I remember a minister who told us that they started, because I asked a lot of questions when I see people who are successful and they're child-rearing, and I said, well, what are some of the keys that you've, you've uh, put into practice? He said, well... With our children, we always tried to help them to learn how to make right decisions. So with our daughter, one time she wanted to wear a dress for Sabbath services, but she was going to a party uh, the next day, and she wanted to wear the same dress. That was her favorite dress, and they knew she'd want to wear it. So instead of telling her she couldn't wear it for Sabbath services, they told her, if you wear it for Sabbath services, you won't be able to wear it for the party tomorrow. And I don't remember what she did. But in cases like that, the important part was that they followed through. They didn't lie to their children. Because that's sometimes the way to put it. We tell them one thing and say, okay, you can't wear it tomorrow if you wear it today. And then they get emotional and we get emotional and we wash it up and we let them wear it the second time. And they never learn that there are consequences for their decisions. Very wise parent in that particular case. He taught their children that there are consequences for their decision. I remember him telling us about his son wanted this big speaker system for his car. He was older teenager at that time. And and he he kept telling him, son, you don't need that much bass in your car. And he tried to talk him out of it. And finally he said, okay, son, if you want to spend this money, which he had saved up for, it was quite expensive, He said, go ahead and spend it, but I believe that you'll find that you're making a mistake. So his son went out and got it, and it wasn't very long before he came back to his dad. He said, you know, it really wasn't worth it. He learned something because he was allowed to make a decision that was not going to destroy his life. It was a little thing in the grand scheme of things. It would not destroy his life, but there was a consequence. Lost money. And the realization that dad actually knew what he was talking about. But he allowed him to make that decision. I've heard people say some things like, if my kid goes astray, it won't be my fault. I brought him to church every Sabbath. 
we have to do the teaching. The church is not here to do all of our teaching for us. We as parents have to do the teaching. So many times we find children being pawned off to child care. I'd like us to think about something for a moment. Have you ever realized that a career as a nanny is looked up to? Well, you might even have your own reality show. But a career as a stay-at-home mother is looked down upon. So if you are a woman taking care of somebody else's children, that's a career that's looked up to, one or two children. But if you're a stay-at-home mom with two or three or one child, whatever it may be, that's looked down upon. Why? Who is the God of this world? Who is it that is influencing the decisions that we make? Why is it that caring for your own children is demeaning, but another woman can care for them as a nanny or as an assembly line care at a assembly line care center, and that somehow is honorable? You see, taking care of your own children is a dishonor, but if you work at a child care center, then that's a career, I guess, and that's okay because you're out of the home and you're in the work world. You're getting paid for it. And yet, who knows more and cares more for your children than you? I gave a sermon in one area some years ago, and I talked about this fact of working wives. And I'm not going to say that a woman cannot work outside the home. I'll let you decide that for yourself. But what I did point out was that there is a great benefit with wives who take care of their children, mothers who take, stay at home taking care of their children. There is a great benefit in that. And oftentimes you can see it very, very clearly in the children. And there were two women in the congregation. They had married fellows who had grown up in the church. They'd been out of the church for a while. They all came back. These were university-educated women, very capable, very successful. And about a month later, one of them called me up because... She had decided to quit her job and stay home with her, her daughter. And she called up and she said, I just want you to know that I decided after your sermon that I'm going to stay home and raise my daughter. And she said, I've been home now for a month and I just love it. All the way through the phone, you could just hear that enthusiasm and excitement. Another woman about the same age, actually had a similar name, called up a little bit after that. And I think she needed anointing as well. And she said, I've been praying that God would help my husband to get a better paying job so that I could stay at home. And she said, God has answered my prayer, and now I can stay home with my children. These were very capable young women. They could have had very good careers in this world. Today, they're ministers' wives. Now, that doesn't mean that they are better than one who's not a minister's wife, but it's interesting. 
It's interesting. They help their children and their husbands be successful, and they're able to serve God's work in a special way in that way because they were new enough in the church that they actually were teachable. And they got thinking about it, and they made that decision for them. You have to make your own decision, but that's the decision they made, and as far as I know, they've never looked back on it. In Psalm 78, I'll just refer to it in verses 5 and 8, it shows that we're to teach our children that they not be a rebellious people as our fathers were. Psalm 78, verses 5 through 8. I'd like to take just a... um, Oh, I wish I had time for it all, but I don't. Let me just refer to one more. And that's parental example of rejecting authority. Failure to accept the rule of God or civil authority causes children to be the same way. This fits in with the first point that we brought out about our example. But if we get stopped by the police, which probably many of us have been, myself included. I don't know that we were deliberately trying to do something, but we, nevertheless, you run a stop sign accidentally, a red light, find yourself going too fast, you get stopped by a policeman. What do you do? Do you argue with a policeman? Do you uh, berate that individual in front of your children, or do you accept it and use it as a teaching experience for your children. This is what happens when, when we disobey the law. There are too many people who talk down the government of man and the government of God, and that causes their children to have the same attitude. Sneaky parents breed sneaky kids. I remember hunting one day when a father with his two sons took some shots at a deer that was not on his property. And when they came around to see if they could find the deer, although I don't know if they ever hit it because it kind of ran off, I talked to him. I said, that's not your property. Because I was hunting on property where I I knew it was, was appropriate, and I knew that the fellow there would not appreciate it very much. And they said, oh, we were shooting at a deer down there. It was It was on that property. They were lying very clear what they were shooting at. And so here was the father lying in front of his kids. Now, I I wasn't really an authority, but he was sneaking around. He was doing things that he shouldn't be doing. Sneaky parents breed sneaky kids. What do you think they're going to be like when they grow up? Now, if you reject God... And man's rule. I don't mean reject God, uh, say that I'm rejecting God. But if you reject the rule of God and you reject the rule of, of man, your kids will add one more to the list. Three letters. Y-O-U. Why would we ever think that if we disrespect authority before them, that they won't disrespect our authority? So if you reject God and man's rule, your kids will add one more, and that is you. One of the things that has destroyed so many young people over the years is roast preacher. And it will destroy young people as fast as anything you can possibly do. If you have a problem with your minister, 
and ministers certainly are not perfect, don't take that out in front of your children. Discuss it with your minister. Do whatever you have to. Take it to God. But don't destroy your children by having roast preacher. I've seen that far too many times where somebody does that. In Galatians 6 and verse 7, Galatians 6 and verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And brethren, if we sow the wrong seeds with our children, we're going to reap the wrong benefit. There is, there is a cause for every effect. And we will reap the wrong benefit or the wrong uh, fruit from our children. We've got to sow the right thing, and we have the opportunity to do that. That's a beautiful thing for especially young parents. You still have time. And even those with teenagers, sometimes you have time increase your exposure to them and, and work with them. I suppose there are lost causes, but... Not nearly as many as we sometimes think. But the younger we start, the better off we're going to be. What all these points add up to is described in one word, and that is love. We communicate love to our children by being a person that they can look up to and respect. We demonstrate that love by spending time with them and knowing them. We demonstrate that love when we take time to diligently teach them and when we set an example of respecting authority. And we demonstrate our love for them when we refrain from the demoralizing put-downs and instead build them up through encouragement. We have many young people uh, coming up in the church, homegrown, and those coming from the outside That's a wonderful thing. And all of you parents who have taken on the responsibility of bringing children in this world, I I give you my greatest commendation. I don't think there's any harder job in the world than raising children in this world today, raising them successfully. But it can be done. There are those who have proven it. We might ask the question, what do you do when you find yourself having problems? What I've seen is that when family A has a problem with their children, they go to family B. And what is family B? It's another family with trouble with their children. Doesn't it make better sense to go to family C, who is successful? And find out what they're doing that I'm not doing. Sadly, I think that if we're having problems with our children, what we do is we go to other people who are having problems because we get more sympathy there. As opposed to going to this other family that might say some things that would cause me to have to make some changes. We ought to look to those who are more successful rather than others who are struggling as we are. 
But that's not human nature. There's a source that we can go to, the Living Youth section of the Tomorrow's World magazine. There's one individual, one couple that have been very successful, their children. That's Dr. Jeffrey Fall. He has four children, four still in the church, doing quite well as far as I know. And he wrote a book, Successful Parenting. That would be a good place to start, going to a source from someone who was successful in rearing his children. And I realize mentioning him now puts him on the spotlight, and he wasn't a perfect parent, and his wife wasn't a perfect mom, but I think you could ask the uh, McNairs over here, uh, Jonathan, not Jonathan, but uh, Rod McNair's wife, what kind of parents they were. I think, I hope she'll, she'll support this. I think she will. In fact, the McNairs, Mrs. McNairs here, you could probably ask some things of her because she's been pretty successful with her kids. Several of them in the church, done quite well. Go to somebody who's been successful. We will reap what we sow. And we can sow the right seeds and we can reap the right results. And if by our actions we sow love, our kids will grow up in the way that they should go.